Welcome to another episode of the Ignite Your Mind podcast, a safe place for real talk on discovering powerful stories, talking about mental health, real business journeys, and hearing inspiring stories. My name's Sanjay Patel, and I'm a transformational life coach. And this week, I have another special guest that is Sam Ortil. Sam takes us back on his journey from when he moved from Poland to London back in 2007. One of his main challenges when he came to London was a slow intake of alcohol, which led to an excessive intake of alcohol and then becoming dependent on it in certain situations, which then ultimately led to his anxiety and panic attacks. I asked him outright, how do you stop a panic attack? Sam goes into detail with lots of coping mechanisms and tips on how to deal with this and how he transformed his life and now being five years sober. This is truly another hero story and I'm grateful I had the time to hear Sam's story. I hope you enjoy. And welcome to another Ignite Your Mind podcast with myself, Sanjay Patel. I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, And this week, as you know, I'm bringing those special, special guests to talk about their journeys, inspiring journeys more so. Uh, I feel this one uh, is going to go probably more into mental health, uh, which you know I'm a big advocate for. uh, And I'm super, super excited to have Sam on the podcast today. He has been through a from what I know, just from the, the stuff I've seen from him, quite an inspiring journey, a difficult one at times, but I'm going to let the man himself uh, take it away. So Sam, how are you? Yeah, living a dream. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm all good. I'm all good. I just said before we jumped on the podcast, I was like, I was hoping if you're watching this, um, you can watch the full stream on YouTube. Uh, if you're watching this, then uh, he's wearing his free hugs t-shirt and I was hoping he was going to wear that because that's, that's how I see him in all the videos. So uh, yeah, you're all good though, yeah? Yeah, I'm very well. It became a bit of my sort of uh, sign, if you will. So, yeah, yeah, I could not wear something else. I mean, look, at the moment, uh, especially being in lockdown, I'm assuming a lot of people, I actually put something on my Instagram the other day. um, What's the number one thing you're looking forward to when social distancing ends? And then most of the people said hugging, hugging their family, hugging their brother, the sister, the mum, the dad, you know, like that was the main thing. So um, yeah, I love, I love that you stand for that. That's good. I'll tell you what, Sam, I I mean, I don't know too much about you. This is actually the first time you've actually probably spoken. Yeah. Um, So... This is going to be an interesting conversation. Um, take me back. Take me back, Sam, um, to when you were growing up. What was it like to grow up as a kid, um, as Sam? That's a good question. Oh, my God. Mm. Um, so I was always this sort of happy-go-lucky kid. I always wanted everybody to get along together. I always wanted people to be sort of one big happy family, play nicely together. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I was very curious, but I didn't get into a lot of serious trouble. I was always getting into sort of small mischief with my mom and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I always wanted to know how things work. So I would take apart certain things at home, like radio, and obviously I was not able to put it back together. So my mother always used to say that, you just break everything. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you destroy her. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was just curious how yeah. things work. Um, but being later in my teenage years, I'll just never get into a lot of fights. Um, I would not be very comfortable with confrontations. And I believe that this is what led me later on to become a people pleaser, uh, you know, have low self-esteem. I was quite shy kid. Um, and, and all these issues, I think, fed into starting my anxiety, if yeah. I look back at it. Okay, so tell me back because you, when you said um, you were a happy-go-lucky kid growing up, yeah. um, 
where do you think that come from? Where do you think that, that sort of stemmed from? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know if I can answer that. I, I just, as, as far as I can remember, hmm. I was just always looking on the bright side of life, even though growing up, I was not rich. You know, I grew up without my father. So my mom had to work 24 seven pretty much yep. to make sure I have place to live and, and food on my plate. Yeah. Uh, I have a brother and sister. But I would always look on the bright side of life. So yeah. it stayed with me until this day. Um, but if I could say where it came from, I, I don't know. It's just I just remember it as being that way always for me. So Yeah. No, I mean, look, that, that's, that's, that's an amazing trait to have because a lot of people don't have that, especially when you're a child or you're going through your teenage, you're like a sponge, right? You're really yeah. susceptible to other people's opinions and what other people are doing, especially the kids. At, at your age um i know when i was when i was when i was growing up I, I used to get into situations where i'd end up hanging around the bad kids because i thought that was the cool thing to do yeah right and and, and then i ended up because i ended up doing that and surrounding myself then that's who i become but then i still always had this other group of friends who it's almost like i was running two lives like i have a, i'd have a the bad group of friends and then the, you know the good group of friends that do the nice stuff and you know, go out and play football, but then the other ones who like to hang about in the street and do all that stuff. So it was, it was quite an interesting, interesting balance. I don't really know where I've stopped or where I got out of it, to be fair. But um, yeah, no, it was interesting. And um, the mischief is always tempting, isn't it? When exactly. you're a teenager or a kid, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And that, sort of, that leads you onto your later life when you become like an older teen, like 16, 17, when you can really start going out and, you know, and that's mm. when I started drinking and stuff like that, like going to house parties and all of that stuff. So um, yeah, no, it was quite interesting. So Tell us when you got to like school, end of school, 16, 17. I know I'm taking you back now, <laughs> taking you back. Um, 16, 17, like what were you, what were you like as a, a teenager then? Um, I think, I think I was sort of quite, quite shy until that age. I think I started developing my sort of personality a bit more when I get into high school. So uh, from the age of what was it, fifteen, sixteen, yeah. until sort of eighteen, nineteen, uh, where you go to. Because I used to grow up in a small town, so then you have to travel to school to a bigger city. You meet some mm -hmm. city kids. Opportunities open up. You go to parties and meet people. So I think from there it sort of developed uh, different interests. This is where I started reading about psychology. Um, so I was always somebody okay. who would who would never follow a crowd i would stand on the side and sort of watch people how they behave and try to understand what is going on and i think that's where interest in psychology came in yeah. um but definitely got into a bit more mischief trying different things as you say uh, alcohol drugs partying going out uh, for a party and coming back home three days later on all this crazy stuff but i think you yeah. have to you have to go through it so then Later in life, when you're in your 40s and you have a family, you don't feel tempted to go and try that life. So I think it's mm. like a natural progression. You have to go through this, uh, through the stages of life so, so you develop properly. That's my yeah. opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so right. You know, you have to experience these things. Like, I remember when I was 15, my, my, my dad gave me my first alcoholic beverage and he was like, I want you to try it. And my mum was like, why are you giving it to him? Like, he's so young. He was like, well, he needs to try it at some point and I'd rather yeah. he tries it when he's around me. 
rather than doing it outside. But little did he know I was already doing it outside. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so it was always good. I was like, yeah, all right, dad's sweet. Thanks for that. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, where, where did you grow up then? What school did you go to? Um, so I grew up in Poland. I moved okay. to UK when I was 22. Yeah. Um, I went to school. Uh, we had eight, eight years of primary school and then the secondary or high school, whichever you go, you, yeah. you have different choices. It's four years. Uh, and it was like a sort of general knowledge school with specialization in IT, right. which was in those days, it was just a BS really to, to just go through something that is easy. Um, yeah. It was fairly close. It was like, I don't know, six miles or seven miles away. Mm-hmm. And it had the, uh, it had the opinion of being an easy school to get through. So I wasn't interested too much in studying. I hated reading books when I was in school. And only later in my life, I realized this was because somebody told me what to read. Now, if I have Mm. a choice, it's a completely different ballgame, right? Yeah. So I love reading now because I can read whatever I want. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So someone told you to read something, so you read it. right? No, I didn't. I didn't read any books in school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... That's why I didn't like studying because, um, uh, you know, most teachers, they didn't have the talent to actually interest in subjects. I had a few yeah. uh, that were different. For example, my math teacher, my history teacher, I would sit there and listen and would like to read all the books on this subject yeah. and would do so. And I was really immersed in the subject that we would cover. Yeah. But then when you have somebody who comes to school just to take another day and cannot interest the class in, in the subject, then obviously kids will not learn. Yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to pick on teachers because it's not an easy job, right? But being on not. the other side, being on the receiving side, uh, if you want kids to learn something, you have to sort of spark their interest. Yeah, no, no, you're so right. And it's, it's usually my, my <laughs> last week's podcast guest was oh, spent you know, 10 years of her life being a teacher. And she told me some stories about some of the kids. She was dealing with really, really troubled kids and troubled mm. backgrounds, stuff like that. And some of the stories, and I'm just thinking, when I was a kid, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I was all right, but there was still, I was still always clucking to see where I could push the boundaries, right? Yeah. Where I could do get up to mischief and get away with it. And sometimes I wouldn't. I remember I got once suspended from school for graffitiing because I thought that was the cool thing to do. Um, but yeah, anyway, enough of that. Um, so when you left school, 18, 19, 20, what were you doing then? What did you do? Uh, so as I said, because I grew up with my father, the financial situation was always tense in our house, right? Yeah, so yeah. it was always uh, on the radar that I have to go and get a job. Yeah. So I remember my first ever job was uh, I worked as a cleaner in like a big supermarket doing night shift. Yeah. So I would have to travel there for like two or three hours on the bus work for like 12 13 hours and then come back home and that was in the middle of winter so it's really terrible and that was that was probably one of the first lessons of humble life for me that was the first proper humble pie yeah yeah (laughs) and this is the moment when you actually start appreciating what your parents put in to make sure that you have food on your plate and place to live and so on yeah so i've done that for two years and then I found a job at the airport where I would uh, work in ground service, like loading luggage, uh, putting stairs, cargo, and so on. Yeah. And I did it for just over two years. Um, in the meantime, um, 
the army service in Poland was voluntary and they really, for some reason, wanted me. So I had to fight, fight with these guys. I started university twice just to get a paper that I'm still learning so I can get away from army. I think I can safely say that now, but a few years ago, that will probably not uh, go through very well. So that was one of the challenges. But then when I had an opportunity in 2007 to come to UK, mm-hmm. I just took it. I packed my bags, quit my job in two weeks. I was here. So I always wanted to be here. Why? It's a bit of a maybe weird story. When people ask me why, I say I wanted to see Big Ben. It's sort of a kind of joke. I mean, it's an icon. It's an icon building. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree with you on that. Absolutely. No, but I say I started learning English very early. And mm-hmm. when you do learn English in a foreign country, you always read these stories about Sue and John going to visit the Queen or going there. And you read about <laughs> these different places. And yeah. I was always interested in seeing this place. I was always interested to uh, experience a different culture. And because of uh, being interested in English and, and learning English from such a early age, mm-hmm. I always wanted to come here. But back in the days, exchange rate, when we come to money, yeah. it was around seven to one. So trips to England were only really for really rich kids. Right. So I could never afford it. So the moment when I had an opportunity to come here and live here and get a job and make money and have a normal life, yeah. I didn't think twice. Amazing. I just packed my bags. So what, what was the opportunity? What, was, what happened that, that enabled you to come over? So my friend uh, worked here doing groundworks for BT. Okay. Uh, they worked for the company who was a subcontractor for BT, yeah. uh, digging telephone lines, joint boxes, and so on. And as far as I remember, his brother was supposed to go back to Poland to retake his test. It's like A-levels equivalent in Poland. Because right. he failed and, and the following year he was supposed to uh, retake it. So he said, come over for two months, you'll have a job and then I'll help you find something. You know, 2007, these were the times where you could have a different job every three days, right? And some people did that. So yeah. ha- having another job was not a problem. So I packed my bags, I came here and I stayed with the company for, I think, around three years. I worked with this guy, then with another guy, I stayed with the company. Uh, for a little bit okay. so that was the beginning interesting and now yeah what 13 years later you're still here yeah. which is a good yeah. thing we've done well well in england um okay <laughs> cool so then what when you come over to the uk what was i mean obviously you were excited uh, as i'm probably mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming what what were you doing what did you get into straight away uh for like the, the next sort of three to five years or what was your did you have a plan like no you just no, I, I, no. To be honest, I didn't even speak with the guy who brought me here. I didn't even <laughs> talk to him directly on the phone. It was through another friend and my brother. So it was like indirect conversation with him. And only I spoke to him when I uh, arrived here in UK. So it's yeah. a bit weird situation. But because we knew each other since we were kids, I didn't have any trust issues. So I came here and... Uh, in the beginning, it's a bit hard to find yourself in a new place. And I was never extrovert. You know, I was sort of, as I said, quite shy. I was an introvert yeah. kid. So I would start from like just going to work and meeting people. And then I would venture out to see a park, a local area, take a few cans with me, take a few beers. I think yeah. that fed into my anxiety as well. Uh, yeah. 
and would start off there and then venture further, going to museums, seeing all this stuff like, you know, central London, uh, Big Ben and, and all the other Buckingham Palace and everything yeah. else. So, so that was the beginning. So you almost like you felt like a um, almost like a full on tourist when you when you arrived here, just because you obviously seen all these things probably on TV and heard mm. about all these things, but you never really knew what they were. So you wanted to sort of get involved. Absolutely, yeah, and it's a great feeling when you read about Big Ben, for example, for so many years, and you see pictures. Yeah. When you actually stand in front of it, it's like oh, it's yeah, like yeah. this aha moment. That's so interesting because I've lived in the UK my whole life, and mm-hmm. I knew obviously about Big Ben and all this stuff. But even when I was a kid growing up, I had so many opportunities to go and see it, but I never did. I never saw the yeah. excitement because I never saw the, how grateful I was to be in this country and see the things like that. But when I started my personal development journey, I was just like, I want to see these things. And it was something just yeah. clicked with me. And now I'm like, and then I moved to London because I was like, I need to engross myself in this place. And all of a sudden I was just like fully involved with seeing everything, like traveling around London visiting all these unknown places as well as the big touristy stuff and i don't know i loved it like i always said to my friends like, i love i love getting on the top deck of a bus <laughs> they were like why yeah. do you ride a bus to go in i was like because it's a double decker bus like it's a big it's not a big thing but it, it was at the time for me because i never did it, it it is cool yeah i love it as well whenever i go yeah. to london and i have to travel on the bus that that's what it is top deck you know it's, it's just something different it's yeah just something yeah different. 100%. All right. Well, look, let's, let's circle back a little bit because I heard you mention, obviously, the alcohol and drugs uh, part of it. What, what, what happened for you there? When did you start, start really drinking and, and, and what drugs did you take? I hope my mum won't watch it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. We no. don't take them anymore, do you? <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. I'm, I'm, I'm in the place now where I want yeah. to be connected to reality as much as possible. That's why I stopped drinking uh, around five years ago. So oh, I wow. haven't had a drop and it's completely really sober. Yeah. Oh wow, okay. Amazing. After after some time you actually don't miss it anymore. It just becomes what it is, you know, and you yeah. accept it and it's great. So uh, back in the days the techno scene was very popular. So uh kids would yeah. take a lot of amphetamine, a lot of pills, uh smoke some weed obviously drink whatever you can get your hands on mainly yeah. beer because it's the cheapest or before a party make a weep have some money together and buy a bottle of vodka together yeah. so pre-drink um, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. So, so let's just say that i have had an opportunity to try a little bit of all of those things but i'd never i never think that i got really deep into drugs to the point where i can say i was addicted i think my mm. bigger problem was alcohol later on but yeah. funny enough, I still have friends who I was going partying with when we were sort of 16, 17, 18, and yeah. they still behave the same way. And I think that is a tragedy, and that's sad. Still to this day. Yeah. yeah. I, I believe that you have to sort of change your priorities and grow up at certain point and yeah. focus on what you actually want to get out of life and not just piss it away, yeah. drinking and taking drugs. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a realization because there's even even in my world, there's still a lot of people that kind of still do the same thing. Um, you're like, well, you know, how how much longer can you go on for? And that reality sets in, and what do you actually want out of life, right? Absolutely. Uh, and why are you doing it? So talk us a little bit more about the alcohol side of it. What what happened there? Um, so as far as I remember, I always like to have a few drinks. Um, you know, have a couple of beers. 
there's always an opportunity because it's hard because you're going out and all that. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was not to the point where I could say I'm an alcoholic or that was a problem. I think it became a problem when I came here and so started noticing that I feel anxious or have a um, panic attack, and it sort of became mm. a, a coping strategy for me. Yeah. And then the question would be, did my anxiety come from drinking or did my drinking come from anxiety? I think it was a bit of um, self-perpetuating circle. Yeah. Obviously, alcohol helps you, but only for a short period of time. And if you have an anxiety, it comes back with a stronger force when you sober up yeah. because it's not very good for your uh, nervous system and everything else. Um, so, yeah, I believe that it became a bit of a problem later on when I actually get into UK and started having first panic attacks um, and just use alcohol as a coping mechanism. This is really interesting, right? Because you said a couple of times when you came to the UK. Yeah. And I know the drinking culture in the UK is massive. It's probably one mm. of the biggest in the world, uh, proportionately. Um, and it's, it's not the first time I've heard someone say that. Um, especially for example, when someone moved to London, they got really heavily into drinking and then that led to drugs and then that, you know, led to doing it every weekend because they're doing it, doing it. That's what they were surrounding themselves with. And then all of a sudden they were, they were, they saw themselves doing it on like a Tuesday night, like sitting mm -hmm. there getting a bag of cocaine in and drinking and, and doing it by themselves. And then it become Tuesday, then Thursday, then there was a Friday, yeah. Saturday, Sunday, you know, the, the three day rollover. And then it become a, a full on cycle. I had a, a guest on a couple of weeks ago and he's two years sober now and he got fully addicted to drinking, but he, he talked and drinking and drugs, but he talked to us through when it first started, it was a gradual, gradual build up. But for your case, when you said um, it was more the anxiety, <laughs> like what, what, what happened? Why, why did the anxiety come up? Do you think? Oh, that's a good question. I started to unpick it for, for a long, long time where mm. it came from, because I believe that in order for you to deal with anxiety or panic attacks, you have to find the root cause. I'm very mm. pragmatic about the issue. Yeah. Um, and I think all, all, this, all these little things when I was growing up came together to create a certain sort of grown-up version of me. So yeah. um, being a people pleaser and not not engaging in confrontations for example not having a good self-esteem not being um not being confident and i think because of that i would never believe that i can achieve something more in life i would never feel that i that i'm worthy of anything else um and i believe that sort of led me to having first panic attacks and and uh and anxiety because look if you work around guys right you do building work and you work around guys obviously there is some disagreement and i would never step up and challenge somebody i would just take it on the chin always yeah. because that's when i was growing up that's all i knew so yeah. it was always okay. my fault sort of thing yeah. it sounds crazy but when when you have this mechanism this this um pattern of people pleasing that's how you behave you always feel like that's your fault um, so I think that sort of accumulated somewhere inside of me and that resulted in my, me having anxiety issues and panic attacks later mm. on to the point where I was afraid to leave my house. I was afraid to go into a social situation without having a few drinks before, which is yeah. crazy. Um, I always felt this threat also of physical violence. 
And I believe this is because when I was growing up, I didn't get um, into many fights. So I probably subconsciously thought I would don't know how to handle if it uh, uh, sort of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I believe all these things came together and this is what happened then. This, this resulted yeah. in my anxiety and panic attacks. I mean, you're talking about some really, really valid points here because one thing you said is that you, you used to just have a couple of drinks before you go out to meet anyone just to help you build your confidence mm-hmm. up because it gives you that little bit more confidence. And I've heard that time and time again, time and time again. <clears throat> and the question which always comes up to me is that who would you be if you didn't have alcohol in your life to this date, right? Um, but what I really wanted to ask you is, maybe because I haven't been for it personally, and I think this would be quite interesting to people that are listening, is the panic attack. Mm-hmm. Talk me through what a panic attack is. Like, how, how, does, it, how does it evolve in you, right? And then what, what, what goes through you? What, what are you feeling? Okay, so from, from physiological thinking, it's very simple. It's just a big rush of adrenaline mixed with some negative emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. And... But how you experience it, you feel like you're going to die, literally. And it usually happens in the least expected moment. For example, if you're on, on the overcrowded train and you don't feel comfortable, uh, you feel like you cannot breathe or something, that yeah. can trigger you and you can sort of feel it coming. You can feel it's a very physical manifestation of fear, I would say. So you okay. feel it all over your body that it's coming. It's like a wave of yeah. fear um fear-fueled adrenaline experience making you feel like you're gonna die and it's really terrible because yeah you don't know what's going on and the crazy thing about it is it's not only a fear of dying but when you're experiencing that because of your conditioning and how you think of yourself you are afraid that you're gonna die and make a fool out of yourself while you do it Crazy, Which is crazy, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's your condition. And mm-hmm. I have been through panic attacks where I had to get off a train on the next station, even though I was going from London to Manchester. It didn't matter. I had to get out because I couldn't handle it. I didn't understand it. I didn't know what was going on. And yeah. usually because drinking was my uh, coping mechanism, what I would do is just run to the first shop, take two or three cans, have some beer, and I would just continue my journey. So at Crazy, the time, right? that was your coping mechanism yeah. to, to deal with it. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. I mean, the question which was coming up to you when you were describing what it feels like and when you're going through it is, how do you stop it? Uh, that's a good question. There are some breathing techniques. Uh, for example, it might sound simplistic, but when you try to resist, the panic attack tend to be even worse. Yeah. So if you feel that it's coming, you just have to let it come. There are some breathing techniques, but what I believe is if you really want to deal with it, you have to deal with the core uh, issue and then your panic attacks will go away. Because yeah. if you focus on dealing with panic attacks, you're only focusing on uh, the effect, not the sort of root cause where it is. Yeah. So you're just treating the, um, what's the word? You are treating the, the, the um, what's the word? <laughs> Damn it. You're just treating the effect, okay? You're not, you're yeah. not dealing with the issue. Um, 
and that is that is a big problem and another thing i can add to how panic attack feels so when i say you feel like you're dying it's yeah. your blood pressure goes through the roof your heart rate goes through the roof your chest gets really tight you cannot breathe so you yeah. really feel like you're dying and i've seen it when i went through this i've seen a few people experiencing that on a train so yeah. seeing that from a third person perspective that's horrific as well yeah um yeah so how you stop a panic attack it's a it's a great question i always believe that you have to find out what the root cause is and what saved me is one book from christine ingham about uh, panic attacks i've read half of the book or three quarters to the point where it says a panic attack is a sign that something in your life is not working well and that saved me because this clicked and I thought, huh, makes sense. I'm drinking all the time. I yeah. don't stand up for myself. People walk over me. I'm a bit of pushover. What I do doesn't really give me satisfaction. I'm in a shitty situation financially. Well, it actually makes sense that I have panic attacks and anxiety, right? So I had to go back and sort of spend some time fixing all those issues. Mate, that's, that's some powerful stuff. And I fully agree with that. And as you were speaking about the train stuff, I actually realized that I don't know if I, I can't say it was panic. It was a panic attack because my chest didn't go really tight. But I remember like some days, this is going back a few years now, I would drink the night before, only have four or five beers, whatever it might be, six beers, pints, whatever it is. But then the next day I'd have to go to work and I'd have to get on the underground tube in London. And if anyone knows, underground tubes are not, not the best places to be. They are you're packed in like sardines and you've got the, the air is not, it's not clean. It's hot. It's, it's stuffy. And I always remember, I always stand right in the corner of the carriage because I feel if I sit down, there's so many people around you. But what actually happens when I stood in the corner of the carriage, it gets more busy, it gets more busy because there's more and more people that are getting into you. And because it was, I, I remember, see, I remember this because it was only the nights before when I drank and I'd wake up the next day and I have to get on this tube I literally, my breathing would go all over the place. I'd start feeling almost faint, like really weak. And then I'd try and really concentrate on something on my phone, like a game or a crossword or something. But there'll be numerous times where I'd only have six stops on the tube, which is like, what, a 10 minute journey? But I'd have to get off on the third stop and breathe for five minutes and then get back on. And then it would take me half an hour to get back on because the tube's so busy. But I remember doing that and I remember that was my form of anxiety and that only really come from alcohol ever um other days i'd be like fine i quite enjoyed it i quite enjoyed standing there and you know seeing all the people doing all this stuff and stuff like that so yeah it's a it's a really interesting concept to, to speak about um but it was mainly formed from alcohol you, you yeah. said yeah because I've, that... I've, I've been speaking to a lot of people that are, are sober um mm -hmm. recently and and doing the whole sobriety thing and and realizing what life is without alcohol and how much they have actually touched into their true self and realized why they why all these problems arose right um so yeah no it's a it's an interesting thing it really is um what i wanted to say uh, like after so when was the moment when was your your moment where you probably got to your lowest point and you realized what was going on what happened then like wh when was that okay so that was um 2015 i believe okay um yeah i think that was 2015 or 2016. it's a good question i have a picture so i need to check anyway sorry yeah uh, so 
Um, so what happened is I went on this sort of rampage drinking. It started really innocently on Friday, and yeah. then I took a week off from work. And I started just from having a few drinks on Friday evening. But when you're in this cycle, you, you are really, you're not maybe an alcoholic, but you're sort of on the brink. And when you start drinking, you just want more and more and more. Yeah. Um, it spun out of control to the point where through um, well, four or five days, I've drunk a few liters of vodka, some uh, whiskey, a few beers and all that. So next to my bed, there was a lot of bottles, big bottles of vodka, mm. uh, a big glass. I get to the point where I didn't drink vodka from shot glasses, but I had a glass. And straight? I rem- yeah. Absolutely. Straight, but mm-hmm. big glasses. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And I remember one moment where, because it was all obviously a blurry haze, because I was sort of drunk, asleep, <laughs> yeah. and sober a little bit. Yeah. But I remember vividly one moment when I woke up and sort of anxiety kicked in. I had a panic attack and I couldn't breathe. And, you know, um, I got out of my bed and next to my bed in the middle of the room, I had the ironing board set up. On top of it was a, like a whiskey glass, yeah. uh, around 12 ounce. And next to my bed, I had a big bottle of vodka. So I poured myself around half of the glass, just down it so I can go back to bed. So this is, this is the stage that I got to. And I remember I was texting with my friends at that point, but they live... Uh, sort of in north, uh, north of England, near Manchester. Yeah. And I think at that point I said I need some help, blah, 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 but they couldn't sort of help me because they were not there. And one day I woke up, I think it was Wednesday after the weekend, so I was drinking heavily until Wednesday, and I realized if I won't do something about it myself, this will mm-hmm. not end well. Like literally I said, you are going to end up in a ditch if you don't do something about it. So I pulled myself together, took a shower, put myself into a reasonable state, and I walked into hospital in West London. And I remember a friend I lived with at the moment, she saw me and she probably knew what was going on. I was drinking a bit too much within the last few days. And she asked me, can I help you anyhow? And I said, no, I have to help myself. (laughs) I remember that as well. So what happened when I was... um, I went there and I said, I just, I just sort of let go of my pride that I didn't have left anyway. Uh, I sort of let go of anything. And this was this breakthrough moment that I just had to admit that I fucked up, you know, big time. Yeah. So I went, to, I went to the hospital and I said that I cannot, I remember I said, I can't breathe. And I'm having an alcohol poisoning, something along those lines. And all of a sudden there was like three or four nurses around me. They took it really seriously. Uh, I think one of them started hugging me. I think I started crying or something. You know how it is after a big alcohol poisoning, you, your nervous system is uh, is completely out of sync and you just fear and everything. So I, I think I started crying in a hospital. And what they did is, because they don't have uh, ER in there, they got me an ambulance. So I got from right. West London, I got sent on the ambulance to North London Hospital. And you can imagine that was not a pleasant ride because yeah. I was just thinking this. I'm sitting here because of my stupidity. I'm taking an ambulance 
that possibly could have been saving somebody else's life. Yeah. So on one side, I knew I need help, but on the other side, I was really ashamed of what, what I went through, what I have served myself, because that was only my fault, right? My yeah. choices. Um, so it was really embarrassing. And I remember the whole journey, I don't know what it was, 20 minutes, half an hour. I was just sitting there with the guy nurse and a driver. So the guy nurse was sitting in front of me and I would just look at the ground. I, I just couldn't look at the guy yeah, and we, yeah. didn't, we didn't speak. I was so sort of ashamed and, you know, it, it was terrible. And my imagination was that when I go to the hospital, they will sort of take me in with open hands, give me a warm bed, give yeah. me vitamins, keep me for three days, pat me on the head, give me a cuddle, and three days later, release me into uh, the world so I can start my life over. And luckily, that didn't happen. What happened is I spent seven, maybe eight hours in the waiting room. It was completely packed. And that didn't help your anxiety either. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. So I remember I was sitting in the corner and there was one very young doctor who was really, he was really interested in my story and he was very empathetic. So he was asking me what, what is going on? What happened? Why are you having like suicidal thoughts and all that? And I said, yes, obviously. Mm. Um, and what happened that, you know, they took my blood, they checked my, uh, my heart and this and that. And they said, well, because you said that you have had some um, suicidal thoughts, we have to send you to a psych ward for evaluation. And this was the very moment I'll never forget. And this was the turnaround moment. So it was like a scene from a movie when a nurse was trying to take me to a psych ward. So she wasn't very empathetic. Or maybe that's what I thought at the time. She just came to collect me and take me there, right? That was her job. There was no conversation between us. Yeah. So I would walk behind her during this. It was already at night in, in the dark corridor, which had sort of glass windows on the sides. And what I could see is the night and the light of the moon. The corridor was quite dark. So yeah. It was literally like a scene from the movie. And I, and I thought to myself, fuck if i ever get out of here alive i never ever want to be in the same situation again i'll do anything i can so i never be in the situation again this was the lowest point of my life yeah. i was anxious i was drunk uh i was pretty much sobering up so my anxiety was coming back yeah. i was starting to get a hangover it was really terrible um and yeah they they i went to to the psych ward i waited a little bit with people who were clearly having serious issues, mental issues, you could see them being disturbed. Like one person would be sitting in a corner, just rocking. The other would be just talking or shouting to themselves. Uh, so clearly I was in the good company, we could say. Yeah. Um, and what happened when I spoke to the psychiatrist, I have already made a decision that I had to clean up this mess, that I have to change something. It's down to me. Nobody is coming to save me. Nobody can change the situation for me or yeah. me. me. Yeah. So when I spoke to this guy, um, obviously my sense of humor sort of came back. Haha. <laughs> because as a guy, I couldn't, I couldn't just tell him, yeah, I have a problem with my head or whatever. So mm -hmm. I started cracking jokes. 
And he said, Sam, listen, I don't know why you're here. These people have clearly some issues with them. You shouldn't be here. So how can I help you? And I'm like, and I asked him for some sleeping pills. I said, please give me some sleeping pills. I go to bed, I'll sleep it off and I'll be fine. So that's what happened. And I came back. I went back probably, I don't know, midnight, 1 a.m. on the cab. And, and that, was, that was the end of the day. Wow. So that was the moment where, where, I, where, I, where I felt like I can't get any lower. The step lower is me being in the grave. Yeah. And that actually, that was a slap in the face that I needed to stop doing what I was doing because clearly I was just destroying my life. And that realization that I am doing that to myself and I'm the only person who can clear this mess, that yeah. was probably the best thing that happened. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Mate, yeah, that's uh, it's quite an intense story and I think a lot of people <laughs> yeah. can relate to that. But do you know what's really interesting? The one, the one bit which I actually visualised you doing was walking through that corridor with the windows the black windows and the moonlight coming in. When you described that, because that was that felt like to me when you were explaining it, that was the moment you're like, I need to change me. I can't do this anymore. I do not want to be walking back down this corridor again. Absolutely. Um, and 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 also prior to that, like it just seemed like a vicious, a vicious <clears throat> cycle of alcohol, anxiety, panic attack, but then how to treat that as more alcohol. But then the actual cause of it was alcohol. So you're just going round and round and round in circles, right? Yeah. It's just it's just a snowball effect. You just keep plugging posh, plugging panic, plugging like, yeah. So um, thanks for thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. No problem. If you know me sharing this helps somebody else, that I'm up for it. And and you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it was. In the last, as I said, the last five days, just get out of control. Where I just yeah. couldn't stop drinking when I couldn't even go to bed to sleep it off because I would wake up after an hour, two hours, and yeah. I needed to drink some more because my anxiety was through the roof. Couldn't yeah. breathe. My, you know, my body was just rebelling and, and was just all over the place. Yeah, yeah. So when, okay, so like you went home, you took the sleeping pills, had a good night's sleep. What happened the next day? Like, what were you feeling? How, how were you feeling then? This is, this is, this is not where it ends. This is where the suffering starts, actually, because yeah, okay. this is the moment where you have to sober up and face all your problems head on. Yeah. And this is the toughest part. And I believe this is why a lot of people get stuck with depression and anxiety, because it is a little bit too much for them to ask the right questions and want the answer, being perfectly honest with yourself. And I had to stand in front of the mirror at the age of 30 and say, I don't like who you became. I don't like myself. Not in, in a judgmental way, but I, yeah. I just being honest. Perfectly just calling honest yourself out, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Saying, you just people walk over you, you're a pushover and you're a bit of a loser. Yeah. And in this moment, it's also empowering because you, are, you know where you are yeah. and you're not hiding yeah. from yourself anymore. So like, yeah. okay, I'm a loser. So... I'm here now. Everything can only go up. Yeah. Um, but what happened is I was dating this girl at the time and she didn't know absolutely what was going on. I was hiding my anxiety for so many years. So well, yeah. I hear that a lot. I hear that a lot. Yeah. And it's crazy that you can do that. And, and yeah. people ask you, are you okay? 
yeah, yeah, you know, I'm yeah, just tired or something. Shrug yeah, it off, yeah. Just shrug, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I and I told her and I asked her to come over to stay with me for a few days. And so it was, I think, th- Friday, probably Friday after work. I asked her to come over. She lived in a different part of London. And she was only like exactly 1.5 meters. So she sort of reached my 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 shoulders, quite yeah. petite girl. And I remember when she came to my place, everything just, all the barriers I had just, just let go. So when she came to my room, I gave her a hug and I started weeping like a little baby, like not even crying, just weeping like a little fucking baby. Yeah. And I wrote it in my book and now I'm thinking, I'm trying to figure out, was this moment harder for me or for her actually? Because yeah. it must have been really hard for her. And we, we never had an opportunity to talk about it because our sort of, um, we went separate ways and, and she sort of disappeared. So I want to leave her alone. Maybe, maybe that's what she wants. Anyway, um, but this is the moment where it all started. And I was all over the place. I just completely, for the next few days, I was completely in pieces. I couldn't pull myself together. I felt like an, 80 year old man who's got arthritis amnesia and whatnot who can who cannot you know process reality and function normally seriously Mm. that's how i felt but i knew that i had to go through this if i wanted to get better because it sounds like you were going through like a withdrawal process absolutely yeah to get through the other end Mm. Yeah. yeah absolutely and you come to the realization that if you want to get better you have to go through it because the other alternative is you're just going to drink more. There's no other solution. You either yeah. get through it and get better on the other side or you start drinking, which means I'll probably end up in a ditch, in a coffin yeah. or somewhere. So I knew that I had to go through it and uh, face my fears, face everything, be brutally honest with myself, start bullshitting and just build a stronger person. If I wanted to have a chance to live a better life and this is actually where my personal development journey started yeah and i always say that anxiety was a curse and blessing for me yeah because i if i have never went through this eight years of struggle this drinking this hitting the rock bottom i would never be here yeah the peak of my uh my ambition a few years ago was to become a warehouse manager yeah. And comparing to experiences that I had within the last few years, that's nothing, you know. So yeah. in a way, I was blessed that life gave me this slap on the face to wake up and see that, you know, I can be something more, that I can do more and I can have bigger ambitions. And yes, I am worthy to have a better life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I've seen some of your stuff recently and I know you're a big advocate for self-care. Um, absolutely. Like, like me, because it it can... And it's so, I always say that self-care is not a, lug, uh, uh, not a luxury, it's a priority, right? But yeah. people, when they put other things in their life first, as opposed to themselves, put other people in front of themselves, you know, it just takes a battering. And I always say this, especially when it comes to mental health, is that I've seen mental health, I've seen someone that's 55 years old, had no mental health issues, illnesses, anything at all, no anxiety, then bang, all of a sudden it hits them but they mm-hmm. literally did not look after themselves for the, the last 20 years of their life. And then all of a sudden it's just a, it's just a snowball effect and it just really can hit you at any point. And I always say it's such, such an important thing. 
And this is why, like, you know, you started your personal development journey. One of the reasons why I started my personal development journey is, it's, it's, you know, it's a very hand in hand thing, but such an important thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And very often self-care is being associated with being selfish, but it's the opposite because yeah. when you look after yourself better, then you have more to offer to other people. You can better look after your partner, your family, exactly. your spouse, your friends and whatnot. So yeah. you, you cannot pull from the empty cup. It sounds like a cliche, but it's so true. Yeah, no, no. I always say that. I always say that like every morning now I have a morning routine where I'm just filling my cup up. Because I'm unable to go into my day, my my life, and do these coaching calls and do these podcasts, or just do my daily life if my cup's not full. I'm unable to pour it into anyone else, and it's so so important. And I realise that now over over the years that you need to keep doing that. It's a constant constant thing. But do you know what? It can be a fun thing to do as well, a really really enjoyable thing to do as well. Uh, well, look, Sam, we haven't got much time left, but I really want to uh, get across. What are you up to now? Like, what what have you been on for your journey? If you can summarise in a couple of minutes. What I've been so anxiety and getting through anxiety led me to some great stuff, right? So yeah. I started coaching, uh, public speaking. I had an opportunity to be in newspaper, a uh, few other podcasts on the radio. Now I have my own radio show, which I run weekly yeah. on every Wednesday. Um, but I get to the point where 2020 was supposed to be the year. <laughs> I had a lot of plans which related mostly to public speaking and doing yeah. more events. And when this pandemic happened, it sort of mm, it sort of destroyed everything I had planned. So yeah. what I'm doing now is um, I realized that I have to go back to the drawing board. So that was another slap in the face. And I'm not going to pre pretend that it didn't affect me because it did. Yeah. And what I said is instead of pretending that everything is okay and I can just keep pushing this idea that is already dead, I need to go back to the drawing board and first start looking after myself properly again, get yeah. some good, uh, get some good disciplines, get some good habits and just explore different ideas and see where I want to go. So this is where I am now. Um, I have thousand ideas every second. So <laughs> ideas is not a problem. It's, it's, it's the choosing the right idea. Um, so where I am now is I'm trying to explore different, different directions that I could potentially go and I want to lock in on one, but I want to be sure that, you know, this is something that uh, will be the best direction for me. So I'm enjoying yeah. this, this space of just not knowing, just looking after myself yeah. and kicking about a lot of ideas um, and figuring out which one will be the best for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this one thing which this global pandemic has um, done for a lot of people uh, that I speak to and even myself is just enabled us to slow down mm -hmm. really, really slow down and just really reassess what we really want out of life. Yeah. And I always say like, what brings you ultimate happiness? You've got time now to figure that out. Right. Absolutely. And that's, that's, I, it's almost like a blessing. Obviously it's a very sad thing to happen, but at the, at the same time, like how could you use this time to really slow down and, and reevaluate, reevaluate what you want? I think that's such an important thing. Um, so what would you say, just to finish off, what would you say to people that maybe have been through similar experiences than you, but maybe haven't got to that lowest point that you've got to? Like if they were to come up to you and ask you, say, what can I do, Sam? What would you, what would you tell them in that point? Okay. So I get asked that a lot. I can, imagine. Problem, <laughs> I can imagine. The problem, the problem is that people, people always ask, can you give me three quick tips? 
Mm. And what they want to do, they don't want to get to the root cause. They want to treat the symptoms. So that's yeah. the problem. We like seven minute abs. We like yeah. put a little, uh, little effort and have a big reward. Okay. Yeah. But what I would say is three things. First of all, uh, remove the distractions. Yeah. Second of all, find out what is really not working in your life. And three, make necessary changes to put your life how you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem is the first one, sorry, second one, asking the questions. You have to be brutally honest with yourself without hiding, uh, without pretending, oh, I'm kind of okay. No, if yeah. you fucked up, just admit that I fucked up. Because yeah. only then you can start fixing it. If I would pretend that I didn't have problem with the drinking or anxiety, I'll probably still be drinking five years later. And it's not a good idea. So just being very, very honest with yourself is a, is a very important part of this process. Yeah. And I'm not just saying this because I'm a coach, but that's one thing which I always do with my clients is really just call them out on their bullshit. You know, they, they, people like flirting with the idea of change. Yeah. yeah. But they will never get married to it. They'll just yeah. keep flirting, keep flirting. And unless they're called out on their bullshit, unless someone else sees it and they actually accept it, or unless they see it themselves, you're so right that's the only way you're actually going to make real, real change. And I think that's, yeah, um, it's a real, real powerful statement. Um, cool. Sam, look, really appreciate you coming on. I really appreciate you telling your story. Uh, if you've got this far and you're still listening, uh, thank you very much. I'm forever grateful. And I'm sure Sam is as well. And if this has, if Sam's story has, has touched you in a way that, or resonated with you, then, reach out right i'm sure you know sam would you would you be open for people to reach out if they've got questions or want help or absolutely something? absolutely yeah. i'm happy to talk to anybody about anxiety if you're going through something um i'm really happy to share my experience or any ideas that can help you or help you explore what is going on for you so i'm yeah. really open to that and thank you very much for having me no uh, great experience to be a guest on your podcast and free hugs free for... hugs yeah no problem <laughs> any any final words of wisdom get your life in order that's what jordan peterson would that's say <laughs> to be fair I, I i find your content is like a no bullshit approach right yeah that's what i like and that probably comes from the fact that i would bullshit myself all my yeah. life but and it took now you to realize I, that absolutely so now yeah. i like the no bullshit approach yeah. it is what it is you can always nice. make it better absolutely uh yeah right guys appreciate you looking in um thank you for listening to this you can stream this on all podcast platforms and you can watch the full video and see sam's lovely t-shirt which says free hugs on it i'm pretty sure hopefully when the social distancing ends whenever that is that we'll be able to give some free hugs but um yeah no thank you very much guys and sam thank you very much and uh yeah have a great day thank you very much sir for having me and all the best thanks very much take care guys Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Ignite Your Mind podcast. This is a safe place for real talk on discovering powerful stories, talking about mental health, real business journeys, and hearing inspiring stories. Please do subscribe if you are listening to this on Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Podcasts, and leave me a comment. And more importantly, share this with anyone who you think may take value from it. New podcasts every Friday at 12pm. I look forward to seeing you next week.